You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean O' Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. For listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. Now, if you're new here, I'm an OBGYN and I also practice maternal fetal medicine, which means that I take care of patients who have higher risk pregnancies because of the condition they might have, like being over age 35 or having health conditions like a history of breast cancer or thyroid disease or high blood pressure, or due to conditions suspected in their unborn babies. So I diagnose things in babies like heart defects, like a hole in the heart or brain defects. I practice in the Atlanta area. So if you need a high-risk doctor, feel free to go ahead and reach out and contact me. Now, as for the podcast, we're kicking off season number four. Now, if you've been with me for a while, welcome back and thank you guys so much for sticking with me. If this is your first episode, welcome. And listen to the previous season's episodes. And if I say so myself, they're pretty dang on good and informative. So go back, make sure you catch up, but don't skip this this season either, okay? So stay in tune with us. But on your off days, go ahead and go back and catch up with the interesting topics that that you may want to listen to. Okay, so now that we've gotten the small talk out of the way, we're going to talk about how to advocate for yourself. I feel like I've talked about this in some form or fashion in previous seasons, but it's important to readdress this issue directly given some of the recent events. Now, I've had a ton of folks come to my office for consults, actually scared that something was going to happen to them during the pregnancy. With the recent case in Atlanta, that focus, that focus has now shifted to wondering if something is going to also happen to their unborn babies. So if you've been under a house somewhere without social media and you haven't heard about the case, let me recap it for you. Now, I start off by saying that this is not my patient. I do not know this patient. I don't know the doctor. I don't practice at this hospital. So this information I'm going to provide you guys is based on the filed lawsuit, which you can Google and you can find yourself in the public record. So when you sue somebody publicly, you can find the lawsuit. So this is not like I've like gotten into some top secret information and took it. And I'm telling you guys, no, anybody can Google a lawsuit. And um, this lawsuit was sent to me by a friend because they're like, can you sift through this? And like, what happened? Right. So to start, Jessica Ross is 20 years old. She went to the hospital at 10, 10 a.m. on July 9th after her water broke. She was 37 weeks pregnant with a baby boy. 
Her pregnancy was complicated by the fact that she was obese. And I know that people don't like to say obese, right? Like we don't want to talk about weight, but it's a, it's a real thing. Okay. So if you have a BMI over 30, that means that you are obese. If you have a BMI or body mass index over 27, you're overweight. So her body mass index was over 30. And that in itself is a, is a, is something that can cause you to have a higher risk of pregnancy because it does make deliveries more complicated and it can put you at risk for having a baby that has um, undiagnosed anomalies because we just can't see as well. So Jessica Ross is four foot, nine inches high and weighs 200 pounds. She also had type two diabetes. Her diabetes was not gestational. So it's not just because of pregnancy. Diabetes was diagnosed in 2022. So a year before she got pregnant, she was followed by a maternal fetal medicine group in the Atlanta area. She was not followed by my practice. She did not deliver at my hospital system. And she was not followed by any maternal fetal medicine group that also does services at my hospital. So so I am completely removed from this case altogether. She was fully dilated at 8.40 p.m., meaning her cervix was 10 centimeters. The baby did not properly descend down the birth canal due to what's called a shoulder dystocia. Now, shoulder dystocia is when the shoulders are broader than the outlet of the pelvis or the opening of the mom's pelvis. So the shoulder can be caught on the bone of the pelvis, one or both can be caught on the bone of the pelvis. And that means that the baby won't really come out. She pushed for three hours. That's not unusual. With your first baby, if you have an epidural or pain medicine in, in, that's injected into the spinal canal, that's an epidural. That means you you may not be pushing effectively because you can't really feel your contractions. And so with your first baby, we give you up to four hours to push. With your with more than one baby, if this was not her first baby, she would have been given up to three hours to push. So she pushed for three hours, which is less than the allotted time. But with a shoulder dystocia, whether that's recognized or not recognized, um, it's going to be hard to deliver the baby without maneuvers to shorten the diameter of the shoulders for it for the baby to be come through the birth canal. At 9.26 p.m., the baby had what's called persistent late decelerations, which means that after every contraction, the heart rate went down. The heart rate recovered, and then the mom contracted a couple minutes later, the heart rate went down again. This happened until 10.36 p.m. So from 9.26 to 10.36 you have persistent late C-cell. So that's an hour and 10 minutes of abnormal heart rate tracing. And what late D-cells mean when the heart rate goes down after the contraction, that is a sign that the baby is not getting adequate oxygen. Okay, every OBGYN in America knows that. Late deceleration means no oxygen. And we usually have to change position of the baby, give the mom oxygen. I mean, change position of the mom, like put the mom on one side, give the mom oxygen to see if that helps with these late deceleration or these drops in the heart rate that happen after um, con- each contraction. Okay. But this, this did not happen in this case. At 1036, there was profound drops in the heart rate that lasted for 10 minutes, 10 minute period. So meaning you have a drop in the heart rate after each contraction, drop in the heart rate for an hour and 10 minutes. And all of a sudden the baby's heart rate is just down. There's no documentation that the heart rate ever came back up. Dr. Tracy St. Julian attempted to deliver the baby vaginally using different methods. Now, when she attempted it, we don't know. 
Um, but we know that she was pushing for three hours and three hours means from 840 to 1140. But during this pushing, remember at 926, we had the abnormal heart rate to 1036 and then profound, no heart tones or, or at least a very low heart rate. But she was pushing for three hours. So from a, from 840 to 1140, that's three hours. So from 1036 to 1140, we don't have heart tones that are reassuring. But she's trying to get the baby out using different maneuvers vaginally. And usually those maneuvers, and I do have an episode on shoulder dystocia, so go back and listen to it from a previous season. We perform, you know, um, we retract the legs. We give downward pubic pressure or pressure over the bone of the pelvis to try to widen the diameter of the outlet of the pelvis to try to get the baby out. That doesn't work. We then try to remove one of the arms. Cause you can see if you remove one of the arms and deliver it, it then sort of shifts the diameter. So it shortens the diameter of the shoulders to get the baby out. Sometimes we have to try to screw or do what's called woods core screw maneuver to try to shimmy the baby out or rotate the baby out, okay, at the level of the shoulders. We're not sure if any of that happened because in the documents, in the court documents, that's not di- dictated. That's not documented. A stat C-section was called at 11.49 p.m. So remember, she's pushing for four, three hours, so 8.40 to 11.40. And I don't mean it, I don't know if they mean exact time or not, but 11.49, which would have been three hours and nine minutes later, a stat C-section was called. The baby was delivered via C-section at 12.11 a.m., initially with only delivery of the body of the baby, so the shoulders and the body. The head was decapitated and delivered vaginally, according to the lawsuit. The baby weighed 7 pounds, 6 ounces, which is a big baby, y'all. So I know people like, 7-pound baby, that's average. Well, that's average at 39 to 40 weeks. Harrison weighed 6 pounds. 2.2 ounces at 37 weeks in one day. And he was not a small baby. He was at the 20th percentile. So just put it into perspective. Like this is a bigger baby at 37 weeks, which meant that the shoulders were probably much broader than the head circumference or the the circumference of the head because this is a baby born to a diabetic mom that may not have had the best control. Not blaming the mom, but this is why we see a big baby at 37 weeks. Okay, that's why it's not, it's not just about how big the baby weighs overall, because people say, well, if she would have went to 40 weeks, this wouldn't have been a big baby. Yes, but the proportion of the body of the baby matters, okay, in terms of getting the baby out. Because there are more small babies that have shoulder dystocias or getting stuck than big babies, just because of the ratio of the head compared to the abdomen or the belly and the shoulders. That is why this is important that this is a big baby. Now, the C-section and repair of the, of the vaginal tear was completed at 3.01 a.m. Now, remember, they called the stat C-section of 11.49. The baby was delivered at 12.11. So I don't know how long it took them to get from the room to the OR, but 12.11, that sounds like it's a little, it took them a little bit of time to get to the OR set up and get the baby out, okay? Because usually once you're in the OR and set up, once the mom is under, you get the baby out in two minutes, okay? And that's an exaggeration. It's usually one minute skin to baby, okay? We know how to do a stat C-section. But the movement there, making sure her pain is under control, you know, those things is what takes a little bit more time. Now, the C-section and the repair, the vaginal tear was repaired at 301. I'm not sure how 
long it took them to do all this repair. But it seems to me that it shouldn't have taken three hours, right? A C-section, a stat C-section, okay, let's talk about a regular C-section that's not stat takes about an hour. A stat C-section, if we're getting the baby out in a minute, it's going to take about 40 minutes, right, from start to finish because we've done the stuff quickly and now it's just repairing everything. So the fact that everything was repaired at 301 to me says she must have gotten into some bleeding, right? She was bleeding and they were trying to control bleeding, which means they were trying to save her uterus because this is her first baby and the baby's not surviving. So they're probably giving her Pitocin. They're giving her different medicines and different agents to try to get her uterus to firm. She may have gotten blood that's not documented in here, but a case that long, I would have assumed involved some blood. And they were trying to probably do everything they could to repair it vaginally, which can take a while, and to make sure that the uterus was firm, meaning not boggy, because a boggy uterus is what bleeds, okay? So firm uterus doesn't bleed. After the delivery, a boggy uterus or a uterus that's compressible bleeds, okay? So we want to firm the uterus before we're closing the mom back up. So I don't know if it took that long to get the uterus to not bleed or if they close everything and then they're they're worried about the tears that were created in the vagina. Now, let me tell you, vaginal tears can take a while because one, is hard to see. You put the mom up in stirrups after a C-section. And if you have a shredding of the vagina because you got a long shoulder dystocia and you're trying to get instruments in there and do all kinds of things to get, get the baby out, you can cause some tears. So you're repairing all of these tears of the vagina to put the vagina back together. So I don't know what took the longest. That's not documented. Dr. Ross then spoke to the family about her baby's death at five o'clock in the morning, but apparently did not inform them of the uh, decapitation, according to the patient. Now, there seems to be a lack of a lot of documentation, which means that usual protocols might not have been followed because if it's not documented, y'all, it didn't happen. Okay. In the world of medicine, if it ain't documented, it did not happen. So the thing that gives me a little bit of pause is that they're saying the nurses didn't follow protocol and didn't call for emergency. You know, there's there are things that nurses know to do when there's a shoulder dystocia and there are things that the doctor's supposed to do when there's a shoulder dystocia, meaning calling for help, telling the anesthesiologist what's going on, calling the NICU staff and making sure they're available. None of that's documented as that, that happened, which to me makes it seem like, was this an unmonitored delivery? Meaning. Did this patient have a baby that was that had an anomaly that was not survivable? And that's why we have late do, late D cells that nobody did anything about. And that's why whenever it said the patient begged for a C-section while pushing, that nothing was done, right? Because we don't want to do a C-section for a baby that's not going to survive, right? We don't want to put the mom of a recovery and a major surgery, even though C-sections are common. There's still major surgeries that that take weeks to recover from. So if a baby is suspected not to survive, then we would say, okay, we're not going to do a C-section for this patient. But if a shoulder dystocia truly happened, meaning the shoulders were truly stuck and the doctor did several maneuvers to get the baby out and didn't work, then honestly, y'all, the decapitation is not the issue. The decapitation is not the issue. The issues for me in this case is, 
did the mom have a baby that was expected to survive or not? And if the baby was not expected to survive, I can understand why they allow for there to be a loss of heart tones with no intervention. That's number one. Number two, was the baby truly stuck or did the doctor not do the proper maneuvers to get the baby out, regardless if the baby was not going to survive or not, right? Because now we have a mom that's gone through a C-section when maybe she did not need to do a C-section, even if the baby was suspected not to survive. And according to their medical expert, the doctor doesn't have any documentation of the maneuvers that were performed for delivery of this baby, which to me also makes it seem like, okay, maybe this was supposed to be an un- a monitor delivery that somebody just inadvertently monitor because it's hard for us not to monitor a baby, even if we think the baby's not going to survive. Maybe that's what happened in, in this case. Okay. And then the decapitation. We always tell patients if a baby is stuck and we're having to push a baby's head back up to do a stat C-section, one, that's very hard to do. Okay. Babies have certain um, normal, you know, movements of labor, cardinal movements of labor meaning head flexion and then extension and then flexion and engagement and then expulsion. Those maneuvers have to be done in the opposite manner to get the baby back up. It's not just like cramming a baby back up. No, you have to literally maneuver the baby back up, which is hard to do. Okay. It's called a Zavanelli maneuver. It's a last resort. Try to push the baby back up and deliver. It sounds like it's easy, but it, it is not. And you're pushing against a uterus that has contracted a baby down into the pelvis, okay? The uterus is a big, firm, toned muscle that's contracting. So if the muscle has contracted down, how you can get the baby back up, right? So I say that because you got to give the the baby, uh, the mom medicines to call the uterus to relax, to even get the baby to be able to be back up. It's hard to do. But if all of that's been done and it doesn't work and the baby passes away in the instance, Then you do a C-section. The only thing you can do, honestly, is to decapitate the baby, remove what you can at the top, and then everything else is removed that's already out at the bottom. Now, usually we sew the head back on because that's the humane thing to do. You don't have to, but that is usual protocol to put the baby back together. Okay, as surgeons, we always put stuff back together how we found it. We put it as back together as we can. Now, the question is, did she tell the patient that the baby died and the only way we could get this baby out was to decapitate? And we had to do so because you were bleeding so heavily that we had to save you. Okay, did she say the words decapitate and the patient just didn't know what that meant? Did she say the words decapitate and the patient was zoned off because she was so distraught about the baby died that she didn't remember it, but there was a recording. So at some point, somebody started recording. Did they record after the doctor said that? Or did they record the whole conversation? And the doctor literally never mentioned the word decapitation. Did she use another word besides decapitation? Dismemberment. We had to remove the baby's head. I don't know because we don't have the record. Right. We only have the public lawsuits. That's all we have is a public lawsuit. The thing that gives me a little bit more pause is that there were so many unanswered questions. And I'm wondering if the nurse documentation is in one system, which commonly happens. 
And the physician documentation is another system. And since everything happened so quickly in terms of the lawsuit being filed a week or two later, was it just that we don't have all the information because we don't know where to find it? The systems are convoluted like that. Like even my charting, I have to open three different systems to chart. My consult notes in one system, my ultrasound reports in another system, and the images are stored in one other system. Uh, the world of electronic medical records they thought was going to be a good idea, but all but it also has made hospital systems cheapify things and make doctors have to sort of piece together systems that they need, which has, has actually made things a lot more cumbersome than just writing on a piece of paper, to be honest. So is it that we just don't have all the pieces? Now, in the, in the lawsuit, it says the family is suing for $10,000 plus legal fees, which also brings up, why is the amount so low? Is this a typo? Did they mean like 10 million or 10 million per person involved to pay? I'm confused by the words 10,000 because the affidavit in itself does have a typo in there with the dates. So I'm wondering if there's also a typo in the amount because for this to be such a public case, why are they only asking for so little? I say all that because there's so many unanswered questions here. And it doesn't make a lot of sense with the loss of heart tones, the patient asking for a C-section and being told no, that wasn't documented. The, you know, how the patient was counseled about the delivery, that wasn't documented. Why the baby was decapitated, that wasn't documented. Why the case took so long, that's not documented. There's just so many things not documented here. What was going on with the baby? Did the baby have anomalies that we didn't know about? Not documented, not in the affidavit in the lawsuit anyway. Now, because of this case, even during the summer hiatus of me being off of the podcast, y'all have sent some emails. Y'all sent some DMs. Y'all found me. People that are not my patients calling my office. You guys want to know how this could happen and how you can make sure this doesn't happen to you. So although I can't give a medical legal opinion because this is not my job, this is for the job of Dr. Eric Brown, who is the medical expert in this case, and because I have only seen the public file affidavit and not the medical record, I can only provide you my two cents in the questions I have and some tips on how you can advocate for yourself so this won't happen to you. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Here are my two cents about how you can make sure this does not happen to you. One, before you get pregnant, make sure you get a wellness checkup. Yeah, you don't want to find out that you have a medical condition that's not well controlled during the pregnancy, okay? You can't, you want to make sure that you know what's going on so that you have time to get the diagnosis under control. Very important. Secondly, before you get pregnant, after you've been checked out by your primary care provider and you know about your diagnosis, get a preconception consult with an OBGYN or with somebody like me, which is a maternal fetal medicine specialist. What we do is we go through your records and then we talk with you about each of your diagnoses 
as well as your risk based on your age and your weight. Now, we might want you to get certain medical conditions under control. Like if you have diabetes, we want your average glucose level to be a certain amount, usually 6% before you get pregnant. Or if you have blood pressure, we want you to get that under control. Now, I commonly will switch people's medications to ones that are pregnancy safe. And if you're not well controlled, I will often have a patient that has, I don't know, for example, high blood pressure, check their blood pressure twice a day on that pregnancy safe medication and send in your blood pressure log. I adjust your your regimen based on that log. Likewise, if you have diabetes, I want you to send me your finger stick log so I know what your glucose levels are. And then I will not recommend that you get pregnant until these things are controlled on a pregnancy safe regimen. If you have things like high cholesterol or you're overweight and I say, hey, lose 10 pounds, lose 20 pounds, because losing as little as 10 or 20 pounds can help reduce your risk, even if you are morbidly obese, then I may have you come back in three months recheck your cholesterol, recheck your weight to see if we're going in the right direction before you get pregnant. So you can see that a lot of this work is done before the pregnancy. Now, after we've done our pre-pregnancy work, the next thing you can do is keep up with your cycle so you know when you get pregnant. A lot of people don't know when they get pregnant. That's important. That tells us if a baby is big or small, and that way we're not guessing your your days. After that. Check out your health insurance plan to make sure it covers your prenatal care, okay? Because all plans don't cover your prenatal care. You may have to apply for a Medicaid supplement if it doesn't apply, doesn't cover your care. Also, you want to make sure even if you have private insurance, check out that deductible. If you plan to get pregnant in the next year, you might want to switch to a lower deductible plan to avoid paying more out of pocket for your pregnancy. I have people all the time that are high risk. They know they're high risk. And they say, Dr. Plenty, I just can't afford the visits. Even with me waiving the professional fee for a consult, I can't waive the cost of an ultrasound in a health system. I can't waive that, right? So if you know your your um, prenatal care doesn't cover the cost of ultrasounds and you have to pay out of pocket, switch to a different plan. Switch to one that covers procedures and imaging. Make sure you know that because ultrasounds are something you cannot avoid during pregnancy, okay? And remember, your provider does not control your out-of-pocket costs. Your insurance, that's who determines your out-of-pocket costs. For a provider, it's the same for everybody, right? But your insurance is what says, hey, you have to pay this up front or you don't have to pay this up front. We cover this at 100% but you got to pay a 30% copay for this particular type of visit. So know the ins and outs of your insurance, because I'm telling you that thing can shock people because they think that I'm overcharging. And I'm like, no, it's not me. It's the insurance that you have. Next, schedule your first prenatal appointment as soon as you have a positive pregnancy test. And I say this because it'll take you some time to get in for your prenatal appointment, even if it's with your own OBGYN that you've been seeing for your wellness visits for years. Now, most practice won't see you until eight weeks, but it may take you that amount of time to get a new pregnancy appointment. My next tip, choose someone you trust to be your provider and make sure that your insurance covers their services. Now, ideally, if you're getting routine GYN screening, this should be the same person, right? If you've had a relationship with this person for years, why switch now? But if you don't have a regular a regular uh, gynecologist, then look at reviews objectively, ask your friends if they like who their provider is, and ask your coworkers who they like as well. 
Now, likewise, if someone had a bad experience that you personally know, ask them why. That bad experience could be because they had one bad experience with the front office assistant who is no longer there or because they were given honest information about something being wrong with their pregnancy. Like, hey, your baby has a birth defect. That that runs people the wrong way. They have anxiety about going back to that doctor because they've been given truthful information. They've given, been given good care, but they don't like the, how they feel when they go into their, that office with good reason, right? They've been given bad news. Now, this would not be a reason for, to avoid going to that provider necessarily, but this is why I say look at reviews objectively. Don't just look at a star rating. Actually see why did that person get a one star? Okay, is because they had to wait for a while because that person was in a delivery or because that doctor really did have bad bedside manner. So make sure you look at it objectively. Next, make sure that the hospital you plan to deliver at is the hospital that your provider has privileges at and also in network with your insurance plan. Okay, just because your insurance will cover your prenatal visit by a doctor doesn't mean it'll cover the hospital. That's a real thing, okay? There's discordant coverage there. So make sure that the hospital you want to deliver is a hospital that your OBGYN has privileges at and your insurance covers the hospital and the provider. Now, if you feel you don't have good support, like you're not married, you're not in a committed relationship, or you have high-risk medical issues that are a little bit more complex, consider getting a doula, okay? This is a good option. This is someone who can help you ask questions during your visits and your hospital admission. They have experience helping others through pregnancies that have complex situations. So they may think of things to ask or red flags that you may not see. So they can help you cope with labor and they can also help you with breastfeeding. So a doula is a great option. I do have an episode on um, to doula or not to doula. Um, I think it's season two. Uh, but I'll definitely have a doula and uh, questions for doulas during this season of Pregnancy Pearls as well. My next tip, and I'm a big advocate for this, bring a notebook to each appointment and write answers to your questions down and make sure you document the plan of care. So if you go to your next appointment and the plan of care changes or you see a different provider, you can say, okay, wait, but Dr. Jones told me on this date that this is what's the delivery plan. Because they may be thinking that a plan that has not been made or that previous doctor, if you see somebody weekly, might not have their note documented yet. So that way you keeping up with your own medical care, you're advocating like, no, 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 this doctor told me I was delivering at 38 weeks because of this, not 39. So make sure you're writing down the answer to your questions. And likewise, if you go home and you have questions that are not urgent, Write them down so that you can get them addressed at your next visit and you won't forget those questions. Obviously, if they're urgent, pick the phone up, call the doctor's office, ask to speak to the doctor, or send them a message so that they can answer it even before your next appointment. Ask who your delivering team will be, okay? This could be different, right? Some people will do your prenatal care and not deliver. So ask who is actually delivering you and ask when you will be delivered and or induced. And, and or if you will be allowed to go into labor spontaneously and pass your due date. So make sure you know, in addition to your OBGYN, like who else is going to deliver me? Or if the OB is not delivering you, who is going to be my delivering position? Okay. Now, when you go into labor, make sure you know the name of the nurse caring for you and the charge nurse's name and when their shift ends. Usually a hospital protocol is when one shift in, the nurse will come in with the new 
nurse and introduce you, like do a, a sign out in front of you. But not all hospitals are the same. So make sure you know who's taking care of you so that they know I'm watching you and I know your name. So uh, you you need to tell me what you're doing and why you're doing it. The next tip, if you're in pain, say something. If you don't feel right, say something. If your baby's heart rate starts to sound a little lower than it usually does, meaning it drops below 120, say something, okay? And not accusing people, but ask questions, okay? That keeps people on their toes when it comes to caring for you. And my last tip, someone should be coming to check on you about every one or two hours while you're in labor, okay? This isn't checking your cervix necessarily, because I'm not like a every two hour check your cervix, right? If you're contracting normally, your baby looks good. I'm not checking your cervix every two hours. I'm just letting it happen. But they should literally be laying eyes on you to make sure that you're okay, asking if you need anything, and assessing your pain to see if your pain's okay. And if you need something before that, just buzz the nurse's station and tell them what you need. You don't have to wait until they come in. You can buzz and they can come in at that time. So those are my tips for advocating for yourself. And of course, if you listen to Pregnancy Pros, you'll hear a lot more tips about how to advocate for yourself when we're talking about different specific topics. So now that you know a little bit more about how to advocate for yourself, let's go to some questions and cases. Our first case is a 23-year-old who is pregnant with her first child. She has a history of Crohn's disease for which she had a bowel resection. She was also born with a hole in her heart that was repaired at two months of age. She's afraid that her bowel repair will be damaged during pregnancy and about her heart function, but her OBGYN told her not to worry about it because her bowel and uterus are not the same and her heart condition was repaired. Her doula is advocating for her to get a vaginal delivery, but she is concerned about the possibility of a C-section and how this can affect her bowel and her heart function. How can she advocate for the safest approach to delivery? So I'm glad that this patient is thinking, wait a minute, I've had a major abdominal surgery. I have Crohn's disease and I've had a heart repair. I need to make sure I'm safe, right? I need to make sure I'm safe. This is my first baby. I haven't done this before. And I think it's natural to feel some anxiety. Um, Her OBGYN sounded like she tried to reassure her, but the fact that she's saying your bowel and your uterus are not the same, don't worry about it. That is a complete lie. Like, just because your baby isn't growing in your bowel doesn't mean that it's not going to be a concern during during your your the course of your pregnancy. One, you can have scar tissue from the bowel that connects to your uterus. You can have scar tissue within the abdomen or within the belly. And as your uterus grows, that can cause you to have pain in itself and can lead to a, an obstructive process sometimes. So the fact that they're saying that just is, is, is sort of kind of silly. Um, The fact that they're saying your heart is repaired is not a big deal. It's also kind of silly. Now, nine times out of 10, if you had a little hole in your heart and it was repaired, you're not going to have any residual issues. But it still needs to be checked, right? It's always better to double check to make sure your heart function is okay. Nine times out of 10, if you have a a Crohn's disease and you had a bowel bowel repair and you're not having any flares, it is going to be okay. But it's still better to double check. And so the way that you advocate for yourself is one, if you're not seeing a maternal fetal medicine specialist, you should be. You have a history of a hole in your heart and you have Crohn's disease. So those are high risk conditions that we need to make sure you're on the safest medicine and that your function of your heart is also safe to proceed with pregnancy at term. There are times where we have to recommend delivery sooner 
to make sure that you stay healthy during the pregnancy. And two, if you are, uh, even if you are seeing a maternal fetal medicine specialist, if you're not comfortable and you say, well, one specialist is telling me one thing, this other specialist is telling me something different, and my OBGYN is telling me something different, I'm a big advocate for a multidisciplinary meeting, okay? And what that means is you can say, hey, can you have a meeting with all of the specialists? And it is on your OB or your MFM to coordinate that. And what, what that is, is your, the person that did your surgery will come together. The, your GI or your gastroenterologist who's managed your Crohn's disease will come together. Your cardiologist will come together with your OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine and the anesthesiology team. And they all sit down and talk about their little piece of the pie, right? So as an MFM, I would be the person that's coordinating a multidisciplinary um, conference. The cardiologist would say, hey, she had a defect. It was repaired. We did an echo. She's safe. We don't expect for her heart condition to deteriorate this pregnancy. She can deliver vaginally just fine, okay? Then the Crohn's expert would say, she's flare-free. We put her on X, Y, and Z medicines. Are these safe in pregnancy? As a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I would say yay or nay. And they would say, okay, we will continue treating her with X, Y, and Z. If she has a flare, this is what we recommend. Then the surgeon would say, I did this surgery. This surgery is complicated because she has a colostomy or she has mesh or she has whatever it's happened during the surgery. We'll be there on standby in the event that there has to be a C-section. Okay, but it sounds like based on the other specialists, she can deliver vaginally just fine. Okay, the anesthesiologist is listening and says, hey, based on the feedback that we've been given, it sounds like she can have an epidural just fine and she's safe and we're aware of her medical condition. So that way, the maternal fetal medicine doctor writes up all your medical conditions and all and what all of the specialists says so to make sure we're all on board. That is what I recommend for everybody that has several complicated medical conditions. And if you're concerned, you can ask, oh, is there any way that you guys can have a conference or you can talk to my other providers? That is an easy ask. And most OBGYNs will be happy to do that. Or if they're not comfortable, obviously, they will send you to someone like me that is very, you know, well aware that we need to do that. So the case pro for this case is, When you have complex medical issues, ask your provider to meet to discuss your pregnancy and what's called a multidisciplinary conference. All right, medical intern, what's our next case? This is a question and it says, Dr. Plenty, is it safer to be delivered at home by a nurse midwife than in the hospital now? I know you're a high risk specialist, but if I'm low risk, What's the best option for me? Obviously, for me, as a high-risk specialist, I never want people to deliver at home. I'm just going to say it. I don't want you to deliver at home. It doesn't matter if it's with a nurse midwife or with a doctor. I don't care. I don't want you delivering at home. I think nurse midwives are great, but there are several that practice within hospital systems that are safe. And the reason I say that is because people that are higher risk may need have a higher risk of needing blood or may need have a higher risk of needing a C-section at the time of delivery. And so you can't do a C-section at your home. There are no, there's no blood at your home. There's no anesthesiologist at your home. Okay. And so I am always thinking from a safety first perspective. And so if you're higher risk and I'm thinking of all the possibility, possibilities, 
I don't want you delivering at home. Now, with a low-risk pregnancy, meaning you've already had a baby vaginally, meaning your cervix has been proven, you've gone through labor, we know you can push a baby out. We know you didn't have a shoulder dystocia or a baby getting stuck the first time. Then can you deliver at home? Yes, you can deliver at home, okay? You're yet less than 35, you're not obese, you have no medical problems, and you've had a baby vaginally before. Those are the four things I think about when I tell somebody it's safe to deliver at home. The best option is to deliver in what's called a birthing center. There are a lot of nurse midwives that deliver patients in birthing centers. And it's like almost delivering in like a hotel, right? There's, um, you know, pictures you can lift up and there's oxygen available. There's uh, IV lines available and it's usually in proximity to a hospital. So if you started to bleed or needed emergency surgery, it's not as quick as you being in the hospital to get you to the operating room, but it's quick to get you there. Like you can save you, right? Um, some birthing centers are right next to a hospital, meaning attached to a hospital, so they can get you to an operating room really, really quickly if you so needed it, but you don't have all the checks by the nurses. It's very natural. You are allowed to go into labor naturally. You're not monitored like you would be in a hospital, but somebody's there always to check the heart tones of the baby, to make sure your cervix is progressing naturally. If you want a home birth, you can have, I mean, if you want a water birth, you can have a water birth. Um, and so that's a more natural way to deliver, but also having the the um, emergency setup that you need to get you into a hospital system if you need to. There's also anesthesiologist backup and birthing centers and usually OBGYN backups at birthing centers as well. So if you needed what's called an operative vaginal delivery, meaning forceps used, or because uh, the baby is, because uh, you're not pushing adequately, then there are people that are trained to do that as well. So my recommendation for low-risk women, if you don't want to deliver in the hospital, choose a birthing center, okay? Birthing center that that's just like a home away from home. You don't have all the monitors and things. But if you get into trouble, it's a way that you can have some emergency services available um, that you would not necessarily have if you're 30 minutes away at your house. All right, medical intern, do we have any other questions? Yes. This one says, hey, Dr. Plenty, I've had one C-section because my cervix did not dilate past three centimeters after 24 hours with my first baby. At first, I wanted to have a trial of labor after C-section. However, with this case and the lady being refused a C-section, I'm leaning towards just doing a repeat C-section. If I decide to do a trial of labor after C-section, and change my mind, would I be able to just request a C-section if I'm already in labor? So I know that everybody is harking on this one particular case, but let me say that this is a one in a million case, right? There's a lot of things and a lot of unanswered questions about this case that's in the media. So remember that this is not you. One, this patient did not have a previous C-section. That was her first baby. If you want to have a trial of labor because you really want to have a baby vaginally, and you're a good candidate, then you should have a trial of labor. If you decide if your labor isn't progressing or if you decide, you know, I'm not feeling this anymore. Yeah, you can always request a C-section. Even if you're eight centimeters dilated, if you now want to deliver via C-section, you just tell the nurse, I'm ready to have a C-section. Can I get my OBGYN to talk to them about that risk of a C-section? And they will come in there to make sure you're okay. And then you'll proceed with a C-section. Anybody over 39 weeks can actually ask for a C-section. It's called C-section on demand. 
you don't even have to be in labor. If you want a C-section, you can request a C-section. That's why this case is sort of weird with the patient requesting a C-section and then being quote unquote refused. To me, it means that the baby was already stuck and they just couldn't do a C-section, not that they refused to do a C-section. Or again, that they anticipated a poor outcome and that's why they didn't do a C-section. There's a lot of unanswered questions. Like that doctor used a vacuum, which is like a complete no-no when we are, it's almost like pulling a baby into a dystocia, trying to pull the baby out. Well, if a dystocia is the reason, if the shoulder is stuck, you're not going to do anything but make it even more stuck using a vacuum. So I just don't know. There's a lot of things that were done in that case that I'm like, hmm, sort of kind of sketchy. But again, there are unanswered questions and missing documentation there. So please don't take that case as something that could or would happen to you. Do not try to make that situation your situation because it is not. So I do have a uh, an episode on VBAC or vaginal birth after C-section. Go back and listen to that episode. So it's all about if you're an adequate candidate, meaning you don't have uncontrolled medical conditions, you go in inactive labor already contracting. There's certain medicines we can't use to induce you um, if you've had a previous C-section because it can cause the previous incision on your uterus, not on your skin, on your uterus to come open. That's called a uterine rupture. So we want you to be in active labor if you present. So if you're a good candidate, then yes, you should, you can do a trial labor, but you have to do what makes you feel comfortable. If you no longer feel comfortable and you want to go straight to C-section, that is your prerogative. You can do that. And if you want to do a trial of labor and you decide halfway through, you can definitely ask for C-section. This is your experience. You can ask for what it is you want. All right, medical intern, do we have any other email cases? And she's shaking her head no. So thanks so much, you guys, for listening to Pregnancy Pearls podcast. Now in season four, I hope that you've learned more about how to advocate for yourself during your pregnancy. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to share with your friends, rate and comment. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. Feel free to also check out our quick talks on the YouTube channel. Check out the website, drnicoleplenty.com for free pregnancy downloadables. And for goodness sake, catch up on the other seasons of the podcast because like I said before, they're pretty good. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.